I know it's already been a week since the football game, but the Super Bowl was great this year. It's not every year that you get a game that goes into overtime and comes down to the last drive to determine the winner. And being from Kansas, having year after year where the Chiefs were just good enough to get into the playoffs, but you knew they were never gonna beat Tom Brady, Having these years where they're on top has been exciting. And so the day was made even better when the Chiefs won. Swifties got to enjoy Travis Kelsey having another big game with his girlfriend in attendance. And everyone except those who are 49er fans or those who hate the Chiefs were winners. It was all you could ask for from a football game. I can only imagine the excitement of those who live close by Kansas City as they celebrated their football team being the first back-to-back Super Bowl champions in 20 years. And then Wednesday happened. During the celebration where hundreds of thousands of people gathered to honor and celebrate the Chiefs and their victory, an argument turned violent, fatally injuring one person, leaving a couple dozen others in the hospital. And I can't imagine what that moment was like for that feeling of excitement and joy and celebration to turn in an instant to fear, sadness as the atmosphere around them descended into the chaos of violence and devastation. And ever since Wednesday, my thoughts have constantly returned to those events in Kansas City. And I think there are multiple reasons for this. One reason is that the events occurred on Ash Wednesday. We gather here in this sanctuary for a beautiful service with the Methodists, the Episcopalians, and the Lutherans, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. A service where we began our journey of Lent with repentance, with staring our own mortality in the face as we had ashes put on our foreheads. And the minister proclaimed over us, from ashes we came, and to ashes we will return. On Ash Wednesday, we recognize our days are numbered and are encouraged to make the most of each day. And we recognize that in order to do that, we need God's help. The fact that these events occurred at the beginning of Lent has also kept them at the forefront of my mind. For in Lent, we look forward to a great celebration. Easter is coming, and that fills us with hope. But to get there, we have to walk through the darkness of Lent where we journey with Jesus to the cross, where the Son of God suffers on our behalf. This journey has the power to transform us, for in it we realize how great our need is and how deeply we depend upon God's goodness and grace. And during the next few weeks of Lent, we'll be looking at these promises of God in this series, Standing on the Promises, For time and again, we see in these texts that we will study that God makes incredible promises to God's people. These promises reach their fulfillment in Christ, in whom we are drawn further into the future that God has in store for us. But each of these promises come about not because of humanity's goodness, but as a result of our darkness and sometimes in the midst of doubt. And this leads me to the final reason that these events for Wednesday has stuck with me. Because as I've explored the story of Noah and the promise that God makes to Noah, I found I couldn't separate the radical nature of God's promise from the violence of humanity that caused God to bring the flood in the first place. 
In chapters, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, they really form their own section within the book. In these chapters, God is interacting and creating with humanity as a whole. And then beginning in chapter 12, we see a term where the focus narrows to Abram and Abram's family. But in chapters 1 and 2, God creates a good and beautiful world and makes humanity in God's image and gives them the gift of being partners in this creative endeavor. Then we have Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, representatives for us all, decide to do things their own way, to find good and evil on their own, apart from God. And then from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, there is this sense that humanity is descending further and further into darkness and violence. We get to the beginnings of Genesis chapter 6, and we read maybe one of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture. God expresses not anger, not being offended by the humanity's actions, but regret and grief. Genesis 6, 6 says that because of the violence and evil that threatened God's vision for a good and beautiful world, says the Lord was sorry that he made humans on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. And so God sends a flood to wash the world clean and start over. God takes radical action to preserve the goodness and beauty of what God has made. God saw the violence, was moved by sadness, and took radical action through the flood. But let's talk about this flood for just a minute. Because in the ancient world, this isn't the only story about a massive flood that was around. Several cultures and people groups had stories of the gods sending worldwide floods. And these stories have some similarities with the one we find in scripture, as well as some fascinating differences. For example, in both the biblical story and the ones of the other groups, divine beings cause a flood intended to wipe out humanity. But in Genesis, it's because of humanity's violence, sinfulness, and the devastation they cause to God's good world that lead to the flood. In the other stories, the gods are upset at the noise humanity makes. Like that neighbor who's playing loud music at 1 a.m. In the Bible, God is sad and grieved at the state of the good world God had made. In the others, the gods are angry at the noise of people. Another interesting feature of the flood. In the ancient world, water was often used to describe not just the physical object of sea and ocean and lakes and rivers or what we drink from a well. Water was also a metaphor. A metaphor for chaos, out of which forces of destruction come. And throughout scripture, God is declared time and again to be the one who battles these forces and emerges victorious. The one who holds back the waters and with them the forces of destruction that threaten God's people. Those Israelites hearing this story in the ancient world would have heard echoes back to Genesis 1 verse 2, where the earth was complete chaos darkness covered the face of the deep while the wind of God swept over the face of the waters. The picture of the flood is of God allowing creation to slip back into the state of Genesis 1-2 so that a new beginning can occur with Noah and Noah's family. The story is about God cleansing away the violence and destructiveness humanity has descended into so that God could begin again. One final feature about this flood, most Scholars agree that the story took shape in the Jewish community while they were in exile in Babylon. Here, God's people came into contact with those other flood stories and intentionally told a different one. 
to communicate something important about humanity and about the God they claim to be in relationship with. But imagine these people, torn violently from their homes, taken to a land that wasn't their own, surrounded by people who were not their people, asking why this chaos had descended upon them, why God would allow it to happen, how they would have found comfort in this story, in the reality that even in the midst of a cosmic flood, God saved Noah and carried him through the flood. Likewise, they believed God would one day rescue them and carry them through the chaos they currently found themselves in. So finally we get to Genesis 8, the flood is over, the waters have receded, Noah and his family have left the boat, and God speaks to Noah in Genesis 9 with a radical promise. God says, I am establishing a covenant with you. Now let's talk about covenants briefly. What is a covenant? Why are they important? And what is unique about this one in scripture? Covenant is the biblical word to describe an agreement or a contract between two groups of people. In these ancient covenants, both parties make promises and both are responsible for upholding their end of the bargain. In biblical covenants, this mostly look like, looks like God acting and promising in exchange for the people, being his people, and keeping some commandments that God gives. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to explore the Ten Commandments, which form the backbone of what God expected from God's people in response to the promise and actions of God freeing them from Egypt. These covenants were the official formation of a relationship. Especially in the ancient world, the official formation of a relationship between rulers and their people. These covenants defined the relationship so that each party knew what to expect from the other. These covenants defined the relationship so that each party knew what to expect. It removed all doubt and questioning because the terms had been set. So we see God making covenants throughout scripture, and more often than not, we see God's people constantly doubting God's promise and breaking their end of the bargain. But this covenant with Noah is different from the other covenants we see in the Hebrew Bible. It's different in two ways. First, God's promise is not given to a person or to a group of people, but rather creation as a whole. God says in verse 9, I am establishing my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. That's normal, nothing new there. But then God continues in verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you. This is a radical move by God. God is not just binding God's self to people, but to all living things, making a promise to all of them. The second way this covenant is different is that God promises but requires nothing in return. Every other covenant in scripture, when God makes a promise, there's an expectation of some action or actions on the part of the person or people that God is speaking to. But here God makes a promise and requires nothing in return. And the promise God makes with all creation, the one God makes without expecting anything in return is this, never again will I destroy the earth with a flood. Never again will the watery chaos overwhelm all creation. Never again will I hit the reset button on what I have made. And this is a radical promise by God. Remember, God brought about the flood because of the sinfulness and violence God saw in humanity that was everywhere on the earth. But even after the floodwaters had receded, listen to what God says in Genesis 8, 21. Noah has just offered up a sacrifice to God in worship, and God says, I will never again curse the ground because of humans, 
For the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. That's strange. God sent the flood to cleanse the world. And in the end, God said nothing changed. Or maybe we should say it this way. We get to the end of the flood and humanity hasn't changed. But God has. And God seals this change with a covenant. God promises that his grief at our sin and violence will lead him to find another way to bring about new creation. And God seals this promise with a bow in the clouds. Two interesting things about this bow. The first is the Hebrew word that is translated bow here in the New Revised Standard is the same word that refers to rainbows. But this image is of a warrior hanging up their bow, committing to leave behind a life of violence and find another way. The second, we often talk about rainbows as if they were meant to remind us of God's promise. And while they do, and they should, in Genesis, the main purpose of the rainbow in the sky isn't to remind us of God's promise, but it's to remind God of the promise God has made. If God was ever tempted to bring about new creation in a similar way, the rainbow would remind him of the promise that God had chosen to make a different path. And the path that God chose was not to remain distant from our darkness and violence, but to enter it through Jesus. The path God chose wasn't to bring about violence and devastation, but to bear the violence and devastation of the cross. And the path God chose was not to treat us as our sins and mistakes deserve, but to show radical grace and forgiveness, providing a way for new creation as we deny ourselves take up our cross, and follow after Jesus. This Lent, we can stand on the promise, not just that God remembers his promise to choose a different path in Christ, but we can also stand on the promise that we, when we are in the midst of our own chaotic lives, when the pain of fear and grief seek to drown us, God remembers us. When our mistakes damage the relationships we hold dear, God remembers us. When we are filled with shame because we constantly find ourselves caught in wave after wave of self-destructive behaviors, God remembers us. God still sees the violence and darkness in creation. God's heart is still moved by sadness, and that grief has still moved God to radical action, sending Christ into the world so that we might be transformed by his goodness and grace. Several years ago, I was talking to a guy who within the span of a couple years had lost two different family members in the exact same way. Both were sitting at a stoplight in their cars. Both were nearing their final destination. Both were hit from a car who was speeding excessively from behind. And both had died while those that hit them had lived. Totally devastating. But then he told me about his sister-in-law's funeral. The day of the funeral, it stormed so badly, the clouds were so dark, it rained so hard that they ended up not being able to bury her that day. But in the midst of the storm, he went outside the church and looked up. Above the church, there was not one, but two rainbows in the sky. Almost as if God was saying to him, my promise remains even in the darkest of times. Regardless of what storm you find yourself in, regardless of what darkness closes in around you, 
Regardless of the chaos you find yourself drowning in, God remembers you. God is with you. God has sent Christ to redeem you. And upon these promises, we can find a sure place to stand.